Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. <clears throat> Back in the 60s, there was a, a TV show called Route 66, and uh, this show was about two guys traveling down a highway called Route 66, and Route 66, at least among some of the older people here in uh, the congregation, uh, was a pretty well-known uh, kind of American artifact. This was a highway that ran from Chicago across the nation to Santa Monica, California, and kind of became symbolic of the heart and soul of the country. It provided a way for people to travel uh, and see all of America, or at least a good portion of America. And I'm calling this sermon series that we're starting today, Route 66, not because we're going to be traveling through America, but because we're going to be traveling through the Bible. We are going to attempt, by God's grace, to go through the entire Bible, starting this Sunday, one sermon per Bible book. And of course, there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And so that's where we get this name. Now, I have to admit right away that this is not original to me. I wish I could say I, I thought of this clever name, but I didn't. A pastor named Harry Reeder uh, at another PCA church in the South uh, did a sermon series like this called Route 66. I did seek permission from him uh, for this title, uh, but that's where it came from. But that, that's where we're headed. We're going to try to examine all 66 books of the Bible in short little brief overviews Sunday after Sunday. Now, why, why would we do this? And here's the reason. It's because sometimes we can get really caught up in the details of Scripture. We read every word and phrase and study them, and that's very good because the details are important and all the details are inspired by God. But sometimes we can get so involved in the details that we lose track of the whole story. And one of the main problems or significant struggles that many people have and even many Christians have is not really knowing how to interpret the Bible. And many of us come to the scriptures and we look at this book as if it's kind of like a telephone book. Now again, I'm dating myself here. I know a lot of young people probably don't know what a telephone book is, but that was a book that we used to use to look up phone numbers. People's phone numbers would be listed in this big book, maybe a better example would be like an anthology of English literature where you have a collection of different stories by different authors. Sometimes we think of the Bible that way, like it's just a collection of disconnected parts and we just open it up wherever we want and we pull out what we need. But that's really not how the Bible was written. The Bible was written as a story a grand story. From Genesis to Revelation, a story is being told. And if we don't read the Bible as a story, it's a little bit like walking into a movie theater in the middle of a movie and trying to figure out what's going on, which can be hard to do if you don't know how the movie started and everything that has happened up to that point. The Bible is a story. It's one grand story. There's a wonderful children's book that many of you are familiar with, the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it describes the Bible like this. It says it's an adventure story of a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. That's a wonderful depiction of, of 
the, the Bible. You've all seen movies like that. You're all captivated by movies like that. And you ought to be captivated, captivated by the Bible because that's the exact kind of story that the Bible tells. And here's one of the best parts about this grand overall story. It's that you're part of it. You're part of the story. You're not a random accident. You're not just a high-functioning animal. Instead, you are a creature with special value and dignity, and you have a very important role to play in God's story. So when you go to the movies, you watch a movie, don't you sometimes think, gosh, I wish I were there. I wish I were like this person. I wish I could join this story. Well, the Bible tells us a story that we're all part of, whether we know it or not. So here's the ground rules uh, for this sermon series. Again, I'm going to be looking at um, doing one sermon per Bible book. Uh, I'm going to seek to choose a text that represents as best as possible the overall theme of that particular book. There's no way I can cover every detail in every book, of course, so you'll have to give me some grace there. Um, but um, of course, we're going to be looking at the way each book points to to Jesus, our Savior, uh, so we can keep our eyes open for that. And uh, here's another ground rule that I'm going to lay, that since I'm the preacher, I reserve the right to break the rules. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to do that this morning, actually. Um, we've got to spend just a little extra time in Genesis. There's no way we can give just one sermon to this book. Now, there's other books where you might think the same thing. And I promise I'm going to do the best I can to keep it one sermon per Bible book. But Genesis is so important, and it just lays the foundation. You're just not going to be able to get the details of the later books in the Bible unless we know what is happening here in Genesis. So we're going to take three sermons on Genesis today and the next two Sundays. Today we're going to be looking at the origin of the universe. Next week, the origin of sin. And then the Sunday after that, the origin of the nation of Israel. And then from there, we'll move on to Exodus and the rest of the books of the Old Testament. So yeah, we're looking at a year and a half here, probably, going through this. But I'm excited about it and, and hope you are too. Also, I might suggest this might be a good opportunity to try to read through the Bible along um, with the series. Now, I, I know that could present some challenges. Some of these books are very long, and reading the whole book in a week will be a challenge. But some of the books are very short, too. Um, there's some um, minor prophet named Obadiah, it's like one page, so that'll be a good week for you, just one page. Uh, and since we're starting for uh, three sermons in Genesis, you've got three weeks to read Genesis. Um, but with the later books, that's going to be a bit of a challenge, I'll just leave that up to you. But I would, I would encourage you to try to read along as we go through. So we're starting today in uh, Genesis chapter 1. We're looking at the, the very beginning of the story. And again, there are just certain details we can't cover here, so all I'm going to do is read the first two verses of chapter 1, and then we're going to skip ahead and read verses 26 to 31 at the end of chapter 1 as we consider the beginning of the story. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens, and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Skipping forward to verse 26. 
Then God said, so this is after the creation of the universe, the six days of the creation of the universe. This is the sixth day, starting here with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Father, I pray for your blessings upon this message and this series as we seek by your spirit to understand the revelation of your holy will and your word. Please help us as we do this for your glory and in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so three things that I want to show you that I think are very important for us to know about the beginning of the story. And the first is a very basic point, and it's this, that God is the reason for everything. God is the reason for everything. He is the one that gives meaning and significance to life in this world. There's a famous atheist who said that the universe shows no design and no purpose and that it shows nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And apart from the existence of God, that is absolutely the way things would be. There would be no other way to interpret life but to think that this is absolutely empty of meaning. But this story tells us that God is the reason for everything, that God exists, there is a God, and he is the most fundamental reality in all the universe. God is the reason for everything. So three implications from this. First, it's this. The story starts with God, not the universe. You see that in verse 1? In the beginning, God it's not in the beginning, the, the universe, in the beginning, God. God existed in the beginning at a time when the universe did not exist. Carl Sagan, very famous scientist, once said the universe is all, or the cosmos is all that there ever has been, all that there ever is, and all that there ever will be. His position was that the cosmos or the universe is, is eternal, but this story is telling us no. God is eternal, but the universe had a starting point. Everything starts with God, not the universe. And scientists, as I understand them, and I'm not a scientist, but I'm told that the universal opinion among scientists today is that the universe did have a starting point. That there aren't too many scientists who believe that the universe is eternal, and of course many of you are familiar with the term used to describe the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang. Now, scientists, as they're exploring this, they look for something 
that caused the start of the universe. Because we know that when something starts, something generally causes it to start. So they're looking, what thing caused this? What the Bible is saying, what this story is telling us, it's not something that started the universe, it's someone. Someone. Someone that the Bible calls God. He is the one who is the beginning of all things. And so you'll notice, I'm jumping ahead just a little bit here, but notice something interesting about what this verse says. God created the heavens of the earth. The end of verse 2, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then if you look at verse 3, which I didn't read earlier, but it says, and God said. And so what we find through the rest of chapter 1 is that God creates through His Word. His Word is absolutely central to creation. And so here in just these first few verses, we have God, Spirit, Word, and later in John, we'll learn that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So we see the Word as the second person of the Trinity who later becomes Jesus. So already we have the beginnings of the Trinitarian concept of God being established at the very beginning of the story. God, Word, and Spirit. Now sometimes people look at this and they ask questions like, well, who created God? Where did God come from? <laughs> well, the answer is, no one created God. No one created God. He's, he's eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. If somebody created God, wouldn't we then say that whoever that is, is God? And then we'd be asking, well, who created him? <laughs> and backward we would go until we realize that if we're going to call this person God, we would want to attribute to him the attribute of eternality eternality, a God with no beginning, no end, an uncreated God. And he is the one who is the reason for everything. The second thing here, we see that God is the central character of this story and not you. <laughs> In the beginning, God. The, the story starts talking about God. You are a character in the story, as I mentioned, and you have an important role to play in the story but you're not the star of the story. God is the star. He gets the primary billing. You come to the show to see God and to marvel at Him, not to marvel at you. And this will help put some things in perspective as you consider what happens in your life and the disappointments and the discouragements that you run into and the dreams that don't quite come true and the, the struggles that you have. Well, once you realize that the world does not revolve around you, it becomes a little easier to make sense of those things. The world revolves around God. God does not exist for your needs, although he is gracious and kind to provide for us, but that's not why he exists. You exist for him, is what we're learning here in this first verse. Greg Kogel says this, the story in the Bible is not so much about God's plan for your life as it is about your life for God's plan. God's plan is preeminent and supreme. God is the central character, not you. We're reading this story to learn primarily about God and his work and what he has done and is going to do and what he's like. The third thing here, the Bible presents an account of reality here and not a myth. Do you notice how it begins? In the beginning. The story doesn't begin once upon a time. 
When you hear once upon a time, what you think is, ah, this is a fable. This is just a story that somebody came up with. No, Genesis begins by saying, in the beginning. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of the world in which we live. What this story is telling us is not a myth. It's, it's, not, it's not just a, a, a fable. It's, it's not an idea about you know, the way you might want to look at things. It's, it's not a, a few suggestions for how you can live your life. It's not a collection of ethical principles for you. No, this is an account of the way things are. It's a description of reality. It describes the world in which we live right now. This place with the sun and the moon and the stars and the buildings and the cities and the people that we live in. The Bible is not giving you like an option of what you might want to believe. What it's saying is this is the truth of the way the world is. And I think we can take all of that here from these first few verses. So if God is the reason for everything, then your role in the story, your responsibility as a creature in this story must not be primarily to be a happy person or to make a lot of money or to advance in your career or to be sexually fulfilled or to be true to yourself even though all those things might have their, their value and they might happen to you and that's good, but that's not the primary purpose of your role in this world. Your primary purpose, if God is the reason for everything, is to glorify Him, to know Him, to have relationship with Him, to serve Him, to know as much as you can about Him, to use your life to bring glory to him, to turn people's attention to him, to give thanks to him, to live your life for him. Because God is the reason for everything. And that's how this story begins. Second thing, God has created the universe very good, very good. So in verse 1, in the beginning, it goes on, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you look forward to verse 31, at the very end, it says there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So we don't have time to get into the details of chapter 1, but chapter 1 describes what happens on each of these creation days. And we can sum it up kind of very simply like this, by saying in the first three days, God creates a place for everything. In the second three days, he puts everything in its place. So there's an orderly way that God does this. He creates a place for everything, sky, sea, and the earth in the first three days. Second three days, stars, the fish of the sea, and the animals, he puts in those places that he has created. Now, I know some of you are like thinking right now, okay, what's he going to say about evolution? What's he going to say? Does he believe in 24-hour creation days? Where's he going to go with this? What's he going to do? And you're getting ready for me to get into this big controversial discussion, and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I mean, there is a place for those discussions, and, and we should talk about that, and we should have our convictions about that, but, but that's not really the point 
of the writing of this chapter. This chapter is not written primarily to dispute the theory of evolution because the theory of evolution didn't exist when this book was written. Now, I'm not saying this doesn't have a lot to say about the theory of evolution. It does, but that's not, that's not why it was written. The reason that this was written was to dispute an, another, a, an entirely different kind of worldview that people held at this time. And the worldview was one that's called polytheism. Theism, that has to do with belief in God. Poly means many, the belief in many gods. And that's the way, the way almost everybody believed at that time. They thought, well, there's a god of the stars, there's a god of fire, there's a god of the sun. And we know that there's all these different gods. And what Genesis is telling us, no, 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 that's not true. There are not many gods. There's one god. And this one god is the one who has created all things that we see here in chapter 1. That would have been just as controversial and just as much of a startling thing for people to hear at the time that Genesis was written as confrontations about evolution and Darwinism are today. So to try to stick with what was being thought at the time, I'm just going to leave it at that. This is what um, Michael Williams says. Genesis refutes and rejects all the pretended gods of human imagination. Only this god the God of the Bible, this one God is supremely distinct from the world and sovereign ruler over it. God is not the same as the world. The world is not divine. God is transcendent above it, and he is ruler over it, but there's just one God. Now, we believe there's three persons in that God, as I hinted to a little while ago, but we're going to leave that until we get to the New Testament, okay, to talk more about that. But here we find something else very significant <coughs> that is said about the world. And it's there at the end of verse 31, or the middle of verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God created the universe very good. Everything that he made, he looked upon approvingly with love and affection. He, he created this natural, physical, material world. And he said, this is wonderful. This is great. He didn't create the world, the creation, as some kind of a disposable thing that we should look to discard and get away from. And so often, you've heard me talk about this quite a bit, but that's a very common mistake among Christians is they think of the earth as something to get away from, something to escape, something to leave behind. But that can't be true because what God is saying here is that his creation is good. Salvation is not found in escaping the earth. In fact, what we look forward to is heaven on earth. Heaven is a place on earth. One day at the end of the story, it's a spoiler alert, I guess, but we'll get there eventually. Heaven becomes a place on earth and this account is setting us up for that and for promises that are made throughout the scripture about the centrality and the goodness of physical creation. So two implications from this idea that creation is, is good, a kind of a philosophical one and then more of a practical one. So philosophically, we got to think of it like this. Realize here that the story is starting well. 
that there's a good start to the story. In the beginning, it was very good. There was a time when things were very good. But today, we look around and we realize that things are not very good, are they? We live in a world that is full of trouble and sorrow and sin and injustice and wickedness. And as Larry just alluded or just prayed for us, I mean, in this local congregation, we have lost three people close to us in the last month. Barbara Clark, John Schwarzkopf, John Albers. And our hearts ache at the response of that, to that. We're, we're sorrowful. And there's something in us, isn't it? There's something that kind of protests against that. When bad things happen, when wicked things happen, when things happen that defy our understanding, what we say in our souls is this is not the way it's supposed to be. Something has gone wrong. And that's absolutely the truth. But see, you can't say that. You can't believe that unless things started right. And what the Bible is saying is things did start right. There was a time when things were very good. The only way to say the world is wrong is to say that it was once right. It's just like a stick. If a stick is crooked, how, how does the word crooked have any meaning unless you know what the word straight means? Or here's what C.S. Lewis says. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. And this is what Genesis 1 is telling us. It was good at the first. Everything was just right. But it's been spoiled. So here's one of the common criticisms against the Christian story. It's the problem of evil. How can you say that God is good when there's so much evil and wickedness in the world? Well, that's not an easy thing to answer, but at the very least we can say it's not really a philosophical problem for us. I mean, we don't approve of evil and we, you know, we, our hearts ache in the face of evil, but we have a way to explain it because we have a standard by which evil can be measured, and it's called good. It's called righteousness, the character of God and the way he created all things, and we have fallen from that, and that's where evil and wickedness come from. So that's very important as we think through these very commonly talked about concepts of good and evil. Important to realize things started good, and that's what gives us a foundation for understanding how things can go wrong. But more practically, let's just say this. Creation is a thing to be enjoyed. And 1 Timothy 4 tells us this. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So again, as people who are part of this story, we, we, we love to eat good food, and we love a good night's rest, and we like to hang out with friends, and we like to play sports, and we like to learn about history, and we like good music, and we enjoy these things because we are people of the earth, people created to live on an earth that was created good, and it is God's desire that we receive the goodness of creation with thanksgiving. 
that we don't flee it, that we don't act like it's not there, that we don't just hole ourselves up in a corner and wait to go to heaven. Life on this earth should be good, should be enjoyed, should be relished because it's a very good earth. This story is not about good people trapped in a bad world. It's about bad people who have spoiled a good world and we're waiting for the hero to come back and make it all right. The third thing that we see here is that God has made you and me, all human beings, in his image. And this is maybe the most splendid and thrilling thing that we could learn here about creation. Here's this this God, this eternal God who's existed before all things, this God of glory and beauty, and he has made one kind of creature in this world that's like him, and that's you. You are like God. That's what it means when it says in verse um, 26, then, uh, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's what, what that's saying is you're like God. Do you ever think of yourself that way? I'm like God. <laughs> Sounds a little presumptuous, doesn't it, to say that? I am a godlike creature. <laughs> yeah, you might not want to say that too much in public, but that's what this is saying. You are a godlike creature. You're not God. Okay, you're not divine, that's why it says image and likeness. If something's in its likeness, it's not the same as if a son is like his father. You don't say the son is the same being as the father, but he's like the father. And what this is saying is we're, we're like God in some way. We are uniquely dignified people. We're not the same as God, but we are higher than the animals, we're not just animals. You're not a high-functioning animal. You're better than that. You're more important than that. Now, God loves the animals. And we heard about that in Sunday school. Pastor Brian was telling us about that. And it's absolutely true. If you look in verse 30, you see, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, I've given green plant for food. God cares for the animals. He loves the animals, wants them to be taken care of. And we ought to care for the animals and love the animals and love all of creation. But that doesn't mean we're the same as the animals. There's an exalted nature to human beings, and that applies to a person so young that he's still in the womb of his mother. And that applies to someone so old that they're resting on a bed alone in a nursing home. They're both reflecting the image of God. That applies to all people, no matter what country they come from or what color their skin is or what their sexual orientation is. Those people reflect the image of their creator. This applies to people who are CEOs running companies and people who are serving life sentences in a penitentiary. All reflecting the image of God, all worthy of respect and dignity. So what, what else does this mean, this whole idea of image of God? I mean, people have written and talked about this 
for a long time. And um, just two things that I want to point out to you that are pretty clear in, in the text, knowing that there's more to be said here. But the first thing is this, the, the image of God is reflected in how we are made. And you see that in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's something about two sexes, two genders, that reflects the image of God. God didn't make one gender, and he didn't make 57 genders. He made two. Now that becomes very important when you begin to see the comparisons that Paul will draw between the church and uh, between Christ and the church and husband and wife. And, and we see a very important relationship there between two different entities. So it, it's important that we hang on to this idea and not dispose of it, friends. What God says is very good is not something that we ought to undo. And that's what we're seeing happening in, in our culture a lot today. But there's something about the two genders that reflect how we're made. But then the second thing is the image is reflected in what we do. And you see that in verse 28. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. So two things here. One is the command to multiply, to be fruitful, to bear children as God allows for husbands and wives. That's part of the creation mandate. It's part of God's job description for the human race to reproduce and fill the earth with his image bearers. But we also see this command to have dominion. And this is a command to us to take control over our environment, to take what has been made and to turn it into something useful. You know, you notice at the very beginning here, it says that the earth was without form and void in verse 2. And God takes what is disordered and he makes it ordered. And then here in verse 28, he's passing on that responsibility to you and me. And now we take what is disordered in our world and we try to make it orderly through hard, persistent, faithful work. Whether it be changing diapers or making, uh, cleaning your room, or inventing the wheel, or inventing the iPhone. All of these things are manifestations of this command here in verse 28. We are caretakers and custodians of God's creation, called to be workers for his glory. Here's Albert Walter says this, we are called to participate in the ongoing creational work of God, to be God's helper in executing to the end the blueprint of his masterpiece. And that's a beautiful thing. That's what we're called to do as workers, no matter what your occupation is, no matter what it is you're pursuing, it's part of this effort to execute to the end the blueprint of God's wonderful creation. So that's what it is to be made in, in his image. This is the start of the story. This is the way things begin. It all starts very good. It all starts very exciting. It all shows so much promise, and yet it all goes so dreadfully wrong. And we're talking about that next week, but, but here's something to keep in mind, that even before creation, God had a plan of redemption in mind. 
Because in Revelation 13, it says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Before God created, he had a plan in mind. He, 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 his story involves what is called a fall. His story involves things getting hard. And his story also involves a plan to send a hero, to send a savior into this world. And we might say that all of creation is simply an arena in which that act of redemption can be displayed. This whole thing, this whole life thing, it's a stage on which the glorious act of redemption can be acted out and displayed for us, that we might look at this God and marvel at his mercy and love and grace. A God so good who was rebelled against by his creatures and yet came into this creation to live and die for us in the person of Jesus. That's why Colossians 1, it says, all things were created through him, but all things were also created for him, for Jesus. This story is most fundamentally about him, and we're going to keep our eyes open for him as we continue to travel down Route 66. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for revealing to us your creative work in making the universe. Lord, we marvel at your glory, and uh, God, we want to please you in all that we do as your workers in this world, and we look to your Son for our salvation. We look to Jesus for forgiveness. We look to your Holy Spirit for insight and understanding as we continue through this journey. Help us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.